0: Listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone! Thanks for joining me again. You listen to Amphibicast. I'm your host, Andrew Bates, and this week I'm really honored to have an amazing guest, Dr. Robert Osoboff. He goes by the name of Oz, and he's an amphibian pathologist. He studies everything that goes along with pathology. And we're going to talk about. The importance of having a necropsy done and the importance of fecals and routine exams and things like that, because we want to monitor the health of our amphibians. And there's really certain things that only a pathologist can do, and some pretty amazing stuff. And uh, I, I want to just put this in context. I did have a listener reach out to me about a month ago, Ricardo Rizzo. Thank you, Ricardo, for uh recommend an Oz to me. I'm really glad that I was able to get in touch with him. But I had done an episode a while back titled What to Do When You Lose a Frog, which is really from the the average layperson's perspective in terms of how you can troubleshoot your husbandry practices and maybe consider some different options in terms of maybe things that had gone wrong or things that hadn't gone right, whatever. In terms of just you know your husbandry you're keeping. And um of course there's limits to that. And I did a you know I on the end I left open the possibility for the unknown. These are things that we can't see. Obviously, certain things like cancers or uh, you know issues with it with vital organs, or whatever, any number of stuff. it can't be seen with the naked eye. And uh, that's where pathology comes in, and that's where it's important. So Oz is going to talk to us about all that. But of course, you know the usual stuff, thanks to everyone for the nice uh, reviews on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Uh, someone left a nice review recently. I, I appreciate that. And uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to do so is to become a patron on Patreon. I've got tiers as low as a dollar a month, and I have the more popular $5 tier, which will get you a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode. And of course, check out everything in the link tree. Uh, If you're interested in some merch, The holidays are coming up, whatnot, if you want to get some Amphibicast t-shirts and stickers and stuff like that, you'll find everything on the link tree. You'll also find a link to Panamanian frog conservation if you want to support that cause. And uh, you'll also, of course, find the link to In-Situ Ecosystems. Uh, I'm an affiliate. If you make a 10, if you make a purchase, you get a 10% discount just for being an Amphibicast listener. Uh, if you make the purchase, through the link in the link tree. So other than that, uh, I also want to mention, this is actually round two, uh, Oz, and I did record an episode uh, about two weeks back, but unfortunately the audio was corrupt and uh, it wasn't able to be used, which uh, stinks, but it, it happens. So he's been kind enough to to do a round two of us. So um, I'm looking forward to it. I know you guys are, so let's get into it now. So Oz, welcome back! Thank you for uh, doing round two with me. I know we got off to a we got off to a rocky start the first time around, but <laughs> it's great to have you back. How you doing?
1: I'm good. How about yourself?
0: I'm I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So um, great. We're gonna we're gonna talk about pathology. Um, obviously, you're a pathologist. You study amphibians. Can you give us your story first? I like you know maybe for the listeners, tell us about what your first experiences with amphibians were like, and what led you to become an amphibian pathologist.
1: Sure. So, um, I grew up in Southern New Jersey. Um, and so, um, kind of the, not, not in the Pine Barrens, so a little bit West of the Pine Barrens, but very uh, rural area. Um, I grew up in the woods and there was kind of a swamp at the base of the driveway, um, where my house was. And so, um, all my memories uh, as a child, uh, you know, include spring peepers. You know, as the temperatures start to warm up, you know, looking for tadpoles in the lake that was around the corner from the house. You know, seeing um, all different times of amphibians, different kinds of reptiles. You know, box turtles and uh, some of the different snakes that we have in Jersey. So, um, you know, I from a very early uh, point on, I was uh, you know very exposed to amphibians and reptiles and really enjoyed them. Um, I kept um, you know, a couple amphibians and reptiles as pets growing up. I had, uh, an iguana at one point, I had some, uh, some different lizard species. Um, and you know, I, I would routinely have, uh, tadpoles that we would collect either from, you know, little drainage ponds. They ended up being little bufo, uh, toads or, um, even some bullfrog tadpoles, um, you know, we'd raise up. And so, um, you know, that, that kind of, was what piqued my interest in reptiles and amphibians. Um, uh, I, you know made a couple changes with how I saw my career going um, as I went through my training. Um, and it wasn't until I was kind of halfway through my PhD um, that I really decided that I wanted to commit my career um, to combine my interests in veterinary medicine and basic science research. Um, with my personal interests of reptiles and amphibians. Um, And so from that point on, uh, I made it the focus of my training um, to get as much exposure as possible to diseases of amphibians and reptiles uh, and to do a lot of uh, reptile and amphibian disease research.
0: Now, you're you're very unique because you're one of very few people in this field. This is very, very specialized, right?
1: Yeah, there's not, um, you know, there are... Um, pathologists who may work at zoos um, and you know they kind of look at a bunch of different species everything that's in the collection um, at a zoo or people who do wildlife work and they look at you know a variety of different species Um, but there's not many people who have uh, you know decided to really focus specifically on uh, reptile amphibian pathology Um, and part of that there's not really um, a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, you know, it is a super specialized um, area. Uh, and so uh, I'm lucky in the position that I'm at University of Florida um, that I'm really able to focus my clinical efforts and my, my work on amphibian and reptile diseases um, so that I can see a lot of really interesting cases and that also drives my research program.
0: Does the fact that you're in Florida help that out at all since pretty much, I mean, you've everything imaginable is imaginable as in Florida, as well as a lot of invasive species. Does, does that location play into it as well? Or could you kind of operate as a pathologist like anywhere in the, anywhere in the U S?
1: Um, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. I think that, um, fundamentally I probably could operate as a pathologist, uh, anywhere in the U S, um, with people mailing me submissions, um, from, you know, from all over, um, before I started at the University of Florida, I worked up um, at Cornell and the Wildlife Conservation Society uh, in the Northeast, uh, as well as the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign uh, in the Midwest. And while I worked at both those places, I did have um, good opportunities to do some field wildlife work um, the opportunities are really nothing like there are in Florida. As you mentioned, we have a lot of invasive species. Um, we have a lot of native uh, herpetofauna to begin with. Uh, and um, Florida, sadly, um, is is kind of at the epicenter of emerging infectious diseases for reptiles and amphibians. Um, part of that likely plays into the fact that, um, you know, Miami is one of the major import areas for um, uh, animals, um, that are being imported into the country. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, importers here in Florida and not all of the animals necessarily stay at the importers and some of them get out. And so we have, we deal with a lot of invasive species and a lot of invasive diseases coming from those species.
0: That's gotta be challenging every which, every which way possible. It is,
1: it's, um, it's challenging, but it's, it, you know, I, I, I think it's hard for people to, to understand, but I, it's also a lot of fun. Like I, um, I don't want animals to get sick and I don't, you know, I want to, the research I do is to, to, is to optimize the health of reptile and amphibians. Um, but it really is also interesting to be able to characterize some of these diseases, um, that have gone for the most part, either unnoticed or just ignored, um, and to really get a better idea of what they mean for, the health of both captive and free-ranging reptiles and amphibians
0: what was it like at the bronx zoo i mean you you mentioned that you'd done some training at the bronx zoo i mean i've i've been there i don't know if any of the listeners have been there but the the reptile enclosure there is my enclosure (laughs) the reptile uh house it's kind of like a freestanding building is, is pretty amazing what was it like there what like what were some key takeaways from your experience at the bronx zoo
1: I I really enjoyed my time at the Bronx. Um, So I was there for a couple of years. Um, One year, it was the last year of my residency. So I was focused very heavily on um, doing the necropsies from animals that, um, you know, animals that passed away at any of the uh five zoos and aquaria in New York City they're all operated by the uh, organization the Wildlife Conservation Society um and so while i was there i got to work uh closely with um the herpetologists um and the you know the main reptile curator at the time who's actually still the reptile curator there um don boyer uh and you know d- super great guy uh, i got to see you know the behind the scenes several times see the animals that they had there um, and then uh what was really great in my second year at, with Wildlife Conservation Society, my position changed a little bit and I was focusing more on doing molecular diagnostics, so doing PCR tests to look for pathogens and a variety of species, but um, while I was doing that, I had the opportunity to go to Myanmar um, for a month uh, to work on Burmese star tortoise reintroduction efforts. And um, so we took all of our PCR equipment, and all of our supplies, and we took it with us to Myanmar because it was actually easier to take the people and the equipment to the country than it was to try and get the samples out of the country due to the endangered status and the CITES listing of Burmese star tortoises. Um, so I got to go and do a lot of great work in country. And that, that was an incredible experience.
0: That's amazing. I mean, I can only imagine. I'm I'm, I'm never going to make it there, but I can only imagine Southeast Asia must have been beautiful.
1: It was. It was. I mean, that was my first time in Southeast Asia, and it was uh, it was absolutely amazing. Myanmar is a, is a beautiful country. Unfortunately, the you know the political unrest makes travel there not so easy. Um, but it is really an amazing place.
0: Yeah, it's difficult because so many of these these places in the world where a lot of the frogs that we're so I- interested in you know, obviously there's this, some issues, political instability and, and, and you know, social yeah. issues and whatnot, which is kind of compounds things. But, um, for the listeners in, in a broad sense, what is pathology and why is it significant in amphibian veterinary medicine?
1: So pathology is, um, the study of tissues and the disease processes in those tissues. Um, and so, uh, kind of the, the, Fundamental portion of pathology that we talk about when it comes to um, people with pet uh, amphibians and reptiles is um, necropsies or animal autopsies, um, and so uh, I spend the majority of my time doing um, animal autopsies um, to try and determine, you know, what disease processes were going on in an animal um, that either caused it to decline clinically. Or actually resulted in its death.
0: And there's different—I don't want to say branches, but it's the only word I can think of. Um, Like there's histology and there's parasitology. Can you explain some of the the kind of the offshoots of of, that are underneath the pathology banner? Like what's histology and what's parasitology and what's unique
1: about them? Sure. So. Pathology itself, as I mentioned, is the study of disease and tissues. And one of the two ways that we look at tissues in that uh, fashion is we do gross necropsies. And that's when we open the animals up and look at all of their tissues and see if anything looks abnormal. Um, And then we take samples of all those tissues, fix them uh, in a fixative, usually 10% neutral buffered formalin. Um, And then those tissues get cut into incredibly thin sections um, put on glass slides and stained, uh, and then I examine all of those tissues under the microscope to look for microscopic evidence of uh, disease. and And so that's kind of the main and the main components of anatomic pathology. Parasitology um, falls under a slightly different umbrella, uh, and so parasitology is one of our, you know, focused um, diagnostic areas, um, and so parasitology is the study of parasites, um, and that is done usually by a classical, classically trained parasitologist, uh, and they will look at samples under the microscope, um, similar to what I do, but they don't. They look at them raw. They put, you know, fecal sample. They'll float it or do a direct sediment and look for ova or the presence of larvae, or they'll look directly at worms and look at the morphology of the worm to try and identify um, what type of worm it is. Um, And so um, I don't do a lot of classical parasitology because I'm not a classically trained parasitologist, um, but I work closely with uh, a parasitologist at the College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Heather Walden, um, and um, she helps me a lot with the morphologic identification of parasites. When we start talking about parasites of reptiles and amphibians, there isn't, um, you know, there's not as much known about a lot of those parasites, um, and morphology alone isn't always incredibly helpful. Um, And so that's when I work closely with Dr. Walden because she will do her morphologic assessment of a parasite, and then she can give samples to me to run PCR on. So the other part of my training is I'm a molecular diagnostician. Um, I'm actually a virologist, uh, by my PhD training. Um, and so I do a lot of virus research and then I do a lot of molecular diagnostics. Um, and so the, many of the listeners are probably familiar with molecular diagnostics when we think about taking skin swabs and sending them out for PCR to test for chytrid fungus. Uh, and so that's, that's part of what I do is then analyzing, um, Parasites, analyzing fungi, bacteria, and viruses um, by doing PCR to determine um, what what of those pathogens are actually in a sample.
0: One of the things that I've always been curious about, and this this kind of goes back to when I I worked in a lab in the late '90s, a human human lab in a hospital, and uh, you know one of the divisions of the laboratory was the histology department. That we had a pathologist who worked there, and um, one of the jobs that I had at the time was to put away a lot of the slides that were collected from different procedures, you know, biopsies or whatever. And um, I couldn't, I looked at these slides, I'll be honest with you, every one of these slides look exactly the same to me. How do you (laughs) differentiate between what is normal tissue and versus abnormal tissue? And what's your frame of reference? Because with human beings, we have, there's there's billions of people, there's millions of of samples and things to compare with. If you're doing it like an unusually, uncommon species, how do you determine what's normal
1: and what's abnormal? Um, So one of the benefits that we have across different species is that on the whole, a frog looks very similar to a frog that looks very similar to a frog. So while there are minor anatomical differences and minor changes in um, tissues that can be associated between species as part of variation. On the whole, those tissues look extremely similar between different frog species. Now, if we start talking about a salamander, salamander tissues look a fair bit different than frog tissues, but they still are more similar to each other than they would say to be a fish um, or a snake. Um, and so the only way to get you know, really good at doing um, all of these non-traditional species is to have a lot of exposure to them. Um, And so traditional anatomic pathology residencies, that's what you have to do to become a boarded veterinary pathologist, um, are three years worth of training. Um, And at the end of that training, you have to take a very difficult exam. Um, It it used to be, when I took it, it was a three-day exam. And I studied for almost an entire year. um, And it was definitely the hardest thing that I've ever had to do academically. Um, And that exam is... 96, 97% based on dogs, cats, horses, and cows. Um, And so everything that we know then about that we learn as pathologists about our non-traditional species comes with additional specialized exposure. So that's why it was really important for me during my training to have time at places like the Bronx Zoo. Um, I went and spent some time as a resident with Alan Pessier, who was at the San Diego Zoo at the time. Alan Pessier is really one of the leader, if not the leader, in amphibian pathology. Uh, In North America, he was involved in the initial characterization of chytrid fungus uh, from wild and captive frogs. Um, And so, it really is, it's it's just really important to get exposure. And a lot of the listeners probably understand this from the fact of, you know, it's hard sometimes to find an exotics veterinarian who is willing to be able to look at your frogs. Because while they may have done an exotics extern or an exotics internship, or even done an, an exotics residency, you know, not you don't see a ton of amphibians in that situation. So the best exotics clinicians for frogs are one that see them routinely, that have an interest in them outside of the workplace. Um, and so for me, you know, I have really just, I've really um, guided my career to offer me maximal exposure to different reptile and amphibian uh, submissions Um, and you know, that's one of the things that I'm most excited about in my current job. And I've been at university of Florida now for five years is it is my service. Um, and I can cater that service to make sure we are meeting the needs of the, uh, herp hobby. Um, and I can solicit and request amphibians and reptiles from all over the country. And so, you know, the, the case material that I get in a year or so um, is stuff that it would have taken me 10 years to see working at a major zoo just because only a a smaller percentage of your cases when you work for a major zoo are going to be reptiles and amphibians
0: what percentage do you think is uh, from i guess private hobbyists uh, people sending in specimens to be looked at i mean i mean besides obviously the, the zoos and conservation organizations and whatnot like that how much like how much of your you know day to day stuff includes stuff sent in by hobbyists or pet owners
1: um it's a it's a fair amount um you know i i still have a lot of a uh, lot of connections in the the frog hobby uh and so um if people have animals that they're concerned of that you know that have passed away you know i i do necropsies uh for them i do um i do a lot of reptile work as well um i've been Actively involved in some disease research uh, in snakes and other species. So, you know, there's a, for a certain group of viruses, I receive a lot of submissions because, you know, I, I'm i the person that does the most work with those viruses. So, um, you know, while zoos and uh, aquaria and then private veterinarians are probably the majority of our business, I would say we still receive you know, around 20, 25% of our samples come from individual owners. Um, And one of the things that um, I've been able to do, uh, which is really important to me, is that for most veterinary diagnostic labs, um, or even places that, you know, just pathology labs, just solo pathology labs, they will only accept submissions from veterinarians. And that is because, you know, pathology is kind of a specialized language and it's hard to speak pathology speak to uh, a pet owner um, and so most of the veterinary diagnostic labs to get around that will only accept um, samples from veterinarians um, whereas i you know i am intimately familiar with the husbandry uh, and um, you know the conditions under which amphibian species and uh, reptile species are kept um, i am more than happy to serve as the submitting veterinarian for those cases so i i'm i can then directly translate results to the collection owners and the animal owners to help them better deal with what's going on in their collections that's it that's that's that's
0: great you know i i I have the good fortune to be um, I mean there's a few there's a few exotics vets where I live, but you know it's really crowded here, so this there's, there's a little bit of everything for for someone here. I had a really good experience with my exotics vet, and she wasn't quite familiar with some of the husbandry that the had you know, one of my my blood pythons was having uh, had an infection that needed to be treated and she wasn't quite too familiar, but we worked it out together like I explained the husbandry to her and some of the background information she had one of her texts come in and it was nice because we were able to work out a treatment program together and i think that there's a like a lot of benefit if you can find the right person in the exotics vet world and even if that person doesn't necessarily have like a hundred percent familiarity with how to treat frogs even if you can work with that person a bit you know what i mean like like obviously you have like all the expertise that you need but um I don't know. I feel like exotics vets are kind of like catching on to the fact that like, if you can get good information from hobbies, it definitely helps with, with treatment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, so I do, um, you know, I, I do a lot of training of veterinary students at UF and um, you know, I particularly take an active interest in uh, training the students who are interested in uh, exotics and particularly reptiles and amphibians. And one of the Things that I really try and um, get them to understand is in very few instances, are there going to be times when they, as the veterinarian, know as much or more about the husbandry or the biological background and the, the natural history of the species that they're seeing? Um, because that is where, you know you know, yes, you may have a smaller percentage of reptile owners that may have bought a bearded dragon or maybe a ball python, and they didn't really know, you know, that much about it. But, you know, when you start thinking about, uh, froggers and, you know, really dedicated reptile people, um, they, for the most part are extremely committed to their animals. They know the, the background on them. They know, I mean, What's the question that most every dart frog keeper gets is are they poisonous and you know they know they're not poisonous in captivity they know all of that backstory um, and I can tell you that probably not every exotics veterinarian um, will know the amount of detail that the owners know um, and I at least in my experience when I listen to, owners who are frustrated with their exotics veterinarians, um, it's often because the exotics veterinarians are not listening to the animal owners um, and not listening to the knowledge that they have. Uh, And so I, I completely agree with you. It is extremely important for the owner to work with the veterinarian and vice versa, because while the veterinarian may not have direct experience in every single species that they may see. They have general experience in recognizing broad types of disease um, and then can have really good guesses as to what types of therapy or treatment may be useful. Um, So one of the, and I'll admit this, that one of the limitations that I have uh, in, you know, my position at UF is that, um, you know, the license that I have to do veterinary medicine falls under the umbrella of the University of Florida. Um, And so that limits my ability to write prescriptions um, for different medications. Essentially, the only way I can write prescriptions for medications is if um, the animal has been seen by the University of Florida. Uh, and so if an animal is submitted for necropsy, that is, that does count as, you know, being seen by the university. And, you know, in that way I can do some, uh, you know, script writing, um, but it's not my area of expertise and it's not, you know, you know, for, I can do it certainly for amphibians. There's not that many anti, uh, therapeutic options that we would generally go to, but, you know, it's much better to have, a exotics veterinarian locally that you could work with um, and that then I can help with you know discussing with those veterinarians what um, what diseases may be going on what things they can do about it you know I I'm a early riser I go to work um, usually 4 4 30 in the morning and I you the first hour or two hours of my day is usually going through email and responding to questions about different things so and that's an important part of my job and, and something that, you know, that, yeah, I, I absolutely agree that finding a good exotics veterinarian um, or even a veterinarian who is just comfortable with exotics can go a long way if you can build that relationship up.
0: Yeah, I think communication is a good thing. And I feel like people get people get frustrated often with exotics vets because there's there's, limit, look, there's limitations to everything. I mean, people have you know, no one's going to work 24 hours a day. And I know it's hard for people to get appointments. I mean, I had to wait like three weeks for an appointment, which is, you know, a little, a little bit uh, inconvenient, but once you're there, yeah. I mean, you can, you can develop a good relationship. I mean, look, not every, not everybody's on the same page, but I feel like you have to, you have to develop that relationship. You have to open up that line of communication because that's ultimately what's going to make it work. You know, like she was asking me, she goes, well, what do you think? I said, well, I said, I can tell you what I've learned from talking to other keepers and." you know i've i've heard other vets do you know podcasts about snakes and i said i, I know it's going to be a long healing process if that helps and she goes all right she goes let's try it and we treated it and it, again it was it was a long process but she was extremely helpful and i felt like just you know th- like the legitimate concern like all right well let's figure this out together like i i value that i value people who say all right we don't quite know everything but let's figure it out together and come to a solution and to me that's important i think that I don't think people really give vets a chance, you, you know what I mean? Especially the exotics vets, like, yeah. you know, give give them a chance. Let them, you know, let them help you.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah.
0: So, I mean, one of the topics for tonight is is, is necropsy, and i I think a lot of people might have the misconception not everybody, of course, but a lot of people might have the misconception that you are just going to, you know, plop a frog on its back and make an incision and then just look at everything and that's the end of it. But it's a lot more to it than that. Um, can you walk us through everything that's involved in a necropsy? Um, I don't know if you could give us maybe like a hypothetical case or, or a real life case and just walk us through everything from start to finish.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, just to kind of give you an overview of, uh, you know, what happens with uh, a necropsy. So uh, I think what you mentioned is extremely important, cutting open a amphibian um, and looking at its organs is nine times out of 10, not going to tell you why that animal died. Um, And unfortunately, you know, if it could tell you why it died, the person, if you are looking at it in your own frog, you are unlikely to recognize the change based on comparison to normal tissues. And so, you know, a lot of times those changes, especially with amphibians, because they autolyze very quickly, can be harder to see. Um, So while the gross necropsy, which is cutting the animal open uh, and looking at its tissues is a part of the process, it is by far not the most important part of the process. The most important part of the process is looking at all of the tissues of that frog um, under the microscope and trying to assess uh, what's happened. Um, and so, you know, this is, a, this is a very routine thing for me is, you know, we will receive um, amphibians in the mail um, for post-mortem examination or for necropsy. Um, the, the, one of the challenges with frogs, um, salamanders as well, but frogs, it seems to be more so is that they rot very, very quickly. So, if you were watching um, a suspect frog that you thought was not doing great clinically um, and you saw him die, um, you would need to immediately remove that frog from the refrigerator, from the tank, get it into the refrigerator, get it cold quickly. You never want to freeze them. Um, And even if you were to ship that frog to me on ice packs overnight, um, there still would be a substantial amount of tissue breakdown that would occur that's going to limit our ability to say what's going on, um, particularly in the intestinal tract. Uh, the intestines just start to break down very quickly because of all the bacteria that's present in them. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's why it's, it's helpful um, for uh, owners to potentially. Uh, fix their animals before they send them. And that's something we can talk about in a little bit. But, um, you know, once those frogs get to me and then I look at all of the tissues under the microscope, um, we can get an idea of what's going on. I can tell you if it's a potential, um, parasitic issue is the, is the frog losing weight because it has way too many strongyloides like nematodes in its intestine. Um, is the frog, uh, you know, does the frog have uh, a bacterial infection? There's a couple of different bacteria that we commonly see in amphibians. Um, you know, does the frog have a tumor? It doesn't happen uh, all the time, but, you know, amphibians get tumors just like every other animal. Um, and so we can we can see that and so much more. I mean, you know, it really is amazing the, the variety of different uh, things that we can see in submissions.
0: Is there a certain method in terms of how and where you collect samples meaning like okay i mean when you think about it frogs are similar to us in terms of just general body structure but i mean do you do you gravitate to certain areas like do you do you focus on the internal the external do you take samples from skin eyes organs like what how is like what's the what's
1: the process involved so um you know as If you have, like, so say, for example, your dog or your cat passes away um, and you submit your dog or your cat to have a necropsy done, um, usually what's done is that, you know, a gross necropsy will be performed. Things will be looked at to see what's going on. And then um, select tissues will be trimmed in, like what are called the major tissues. So you look at the heart, you look at the lungs, and then any you know, liver, and then maybe if you see something wrong, you'll trim in other things. Um, As zoo and wildlife pathologists, um, we're trained a little differently. And it's really important because we try to collect as much data as we can from every single specimen. Um, So, Every animal that's submitted to me for necropsy, I look at every single tissue that's in that frog. Um, so the small frogs, it's it's relatively easy. You can pull the viscera or the organs out of the salomic cavity um, and, you know, put those in one or two slides and then, um, we will look at bones. We will look at the brain. We will look at eyes. We will look at the nasal cavity. We'll look at the at the skin, and we look at a lot of skin in amphibians. It's really, really important to look at several sections of skin from different parts of the body, um, and that is routine for every amphibian and uh, uh, and, and reptile that I necropsy. Is we look at every single tissue so that we don't miss anything. I see.
0: Yeah, because I was just thinking about. I mean, like you raised a good point. Like if your if your dog or cat dies from, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think of like some really common. I don't know, let's just say let's just say cancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they're not necessarily going to take samples from the bottom of its foot to see if it had some you know exotic like weird skin cancer. They're going to kind of look yeah. towards what the most likely cause was. Now, that's interesting. I mean, right. how, how much time do you spend just just looking at s- skin? I mean, is it can you learn just as much from the skin as you can from other parts of the body?
1: Um, Well, in amphibians, you can sometimes learn much more from the skin than you can other parts of the body. So, uh, amphibian skin is an incredibly complex and yet simple tissue all at the same time. Um, And it is some of that simplicity of it that determines its natural physiology, and if there are minor changes in that tissue, it can dramatically affect the normal physiology of the skin. And so when we think about amphibians, what are they using their skin for? Um, well, so one, obviously, it's, it's a source of defense. Um, you know, we know about this for the dendrobatids. Um, they have two types of glands in their skin, and one of them uh, is the granular, the serous glands, and that's the source of the skin toxins. Uh, and those skin toxins, um, you know, they're not just toxins to vertebrate animals or things like that. There are lots of antimicrobial and antifungal peptides that help protect the animal, uh, f- uh, across its skin. Um, amphibians do a lot of respiration or breathing across their skin. Some species, you know, like axolotls and hellbenders, um, they breathe almost exclusively across their skin because they're, um, you know, they're obligate aquatic species. For the axolotls, they still have, you know, the the neotenic external gills, um, even though they've got really well-developed lungs, but they're still doing a lot of respiration across their skin and their gills. And then animals like hellbenders that don't have any external gills, they do 90 to 95% of their breathing through their skin, even though they do have lungs. Um, and then the other thing that's a little bit harder to see um, and to see the effects of is, Amphibians do a lot of water maintenance and electrolyte maintenance across their skin. Um, And so they will maintain levels of sodium, potassium, and chloride, and they'll move that across the skin in different directions. Um, And that's why skin disease can be so incredibly important for amphibians. uh, And that's honestly why the disease chytridiomycosis, is so important um, because chytrid fungus doesn't infect anywhere but the very outer layers of the skin. And it really doesn't cause much inflammation or any of the, the other things that we typically associate with infectious diseases. It just makes the skin get thick and then makes the skin have too much keratin. Um, and that alone is enough to disrupt the normal physiology um, to where those amphibians end up dying.
0: That's amazing. I, and amphibian skin is just such an interesting topic. That, that's I didn't know that about the um, about the electrolytes. So they move from different like from like the, the back part of the frog
1: to the front part of the frog. That's that's how it works. So they move from they move from the inside to the outside. So um, the in you know the the amount of sodium, potassium, chloride, all the other anions and cations outside of the frog are at a different concentration than they are inside of the frog. And so the frog needs to actively move those anions and cations to maintain appropriate normal levels to be consistent with life. And so um, with chytrid infections, there was a really nice study done in green tree frogs where they showed, they monitored those levels, those electrolyte levels in the blood of the frogs and showed that frogs with chytridiomycosis had really disrupted levels of sodium and potassium in their blood. And essentially the frogs were dying with Kitchard because they were going into uh, cardiac arrest. They didn't have the electrolytes needed to keep heart function normal. And that's ultimately how they were dying.
0: Interesting. That's really interesting. You know, uh, another case I wanted to ask you about, and we did the the, the first time, the, the failed first attempt that we tried, <laughs> that we tried to record. Um, you had mentioned to me a case that... Um, I'm trying to just just uh, remember everything. Uh, there was uh, someone, I guess, in the hobby or a breeder, someone like that was having die-offs with a certain uh, certain locale or certain species, and you found you basically did this this necropsy and you found something that ultimately led you to the bromeliads being contaminated with a parasite. Do, do you want to talk about that case a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. So that was, um, it was a, a really interesting case, uh, again, in, another frogger that I had known from when I was more active, uh, in the hobby and had more time to do things that were not work related. Um, and, uh, he had, uh, he had some ufaga, um, that were, um, you know, he had one that passed away. And so he submitted to us for a full necropsy, um, and so we did our exam on this frog, um, and we, you know, looked at the, you know, opened the frog up, um, looked at the things grossly. We didn't see anything immediately obvious when we um, did the gross necropsy on the frog, um, but then we processed the tissues for histology. And when we looked at everything under the microscope, um, there were parasites present throughout the uh The, the caudal part of the sea or the abdomen. Um, and so frogs actually have a urinary bladder. Um, it's called a urinary bladder, um, because it's somewhat similar to that, but it's different in that it doesn't actually holds much in the way of urine. Um, The urinary bladder in mammals directly connects to the kidneys and the stuff that's filtered out of the kidneys goes into the urinary bladder. That's not the way the urinary bladder works in amphibians. It's actually attached to the cloaca um, and there's no direct connection with the kidneys themselves. Um, But the urinary bladder in this frog was loaded with um, these weird parasites. And those parasites also extended up the tube that connects the kidney to the cloaca, uh, and that's called either the Wolfian duct or the ureter, depending on you know the terminology that's being used. Uh, and these parasites actually also extended up into the kidney itself. Um, and one of the unique things about these parasites was that they didn't really look like any other parasites um, that we typically see. So the, the parasites we see most commonly in, in amphibians or reptiles or any exotic or domestic species include nematodes, um, trematodes, which are one of the flatworms, and then cestodes, which are the, kind of the tapeworms. Um, and this didn't look anything like those at all. Um, it actually had... Uh, features of it that looked like an arthropod or or an insect and so we looked at them a little bit more and and we got some additional information and it turns out that these these parasites were actually uh annelids or oligochaete worms um so parasitic earthworms they're really really small worms um and they had been they've been documented to cause uh you know, to, to be found in different frogs, they inhabit the urinary tract. Um, and we know that in Florida, um, we, they've been found in Cuban tree frogs and really invasive species here in Florida that's been, you know, eating a lot of our native frog species and has really become the dominant frog species across many parts of Florida. Um, and so, um, we, we were kind of, uh, a little surprised um, by this finding, um, and so um, I reached out to Dr. Alan Pessier, um, who now is at Washington State University. Because um, again, he—you know—I look up to him. He's kind of my, you know, the the guy that I idolized when I was a vet student, uh, who knew everything about amphibians. And um, so I contacted him, and he had actually had a couple of cases of his own, um, including. Um, you know, some case material that was given to him by a medical doctor um, who was really into keeping dendrobatids um, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and he had cases of this similar parasite in some of his U'ufaga that were imported back in the 80s. Um, and so we did a workup. We did a full, you know, part of my The part of the thing that I love about my job and all of the training that I did, um, is that I get to work up cases in in many different fashions. I can do, I, I can do the pathology part. I can do the PCR part. I can do some of the other testing that can really help you fully characterize a disease. Um, and so we. You know, we got sequence from these parasites and they're absolutely, uh, you know, an oligochaete parasite. We got scanning electron microscopy with Dr. Pessier so we could get full details of the, um, you know, of the features of these worms. Um, and then once we had that information, we could start to do a little bit of reading. Um, and w- as I was reading about these parasitic um, we found that, you know, they had been found in free-ranging um, Cuban tree frogs in Florida, um, and that the parasites actually used bromeliad axles and other similar static bodies of water, um, as a place to live, um, and then potentially infect frogs that would come into those bromeliads to rest. Um, so I, uh, was able to get in touch with the, uh, person who sent me the frog and, um, you know, I, I discussed our findings with them and and I asked them to, if they could, get a turkey baster or something and siphon out some of the water from those bromeliad axles to see if we could actually find any parasites. Um, and he did that uh, and he sent me pictures and told me how absolutely disgusted he was because that water from the bromeliads was absolutely loaded with these parasitic annelid worms. Um, and so he sent us more down for uh, characterization, um, and sure enough that that's what was in the water. Um, and so what likely happens in captivity is that, and we see this with for a couple different species of parasites. but what likely happens in captivity is we keep you know our frogs, Um, In these closed glass boxes, we try to give them as much space as we can, but essentially they are still living in a sealed, tiny environment compared to what they would have in the wild. Um, And in that sealed, tiny environment, they're going to continue to visit the same bromeliads, the same bromeliad axils, in the same over, you know, the same, the same ecosystem over over and over and over and over again. And so with certain parasite that allows for parasitic superinfections, um, And that's essentially what had happened to this frog is that the parasites were being maintained in the bromeliad axles, they were constantly reinfecting the frog, the parasites were breeding, their baby parasites were then developing and the cycle continues and continues until there are so many parasites in this frog that the frog succumbs to the parasitic infection. Uh, and so that, you know, that's one of the challenges that we have to deal with, keeping these amphibians in captivity is um, it's really, really important to have good baseline parasite data so that you're not introducing animals with parasites into a beautiful vivaria that you construct, vivarium that you've constructed and contaminating that with the parasites. Um, and then the question is, well, where where do the frogs get? the parasites from to begin with and that's a really good question you know it's possible that these parasites may be in a high proportion of uh, tanks of captive animals and so you know, even though the animals are ba- raised in the best of conditions, they may be exposed to these parasites in low levels um, when they are young, and so they may bring them into a tank. Um, one of the challenging things about these annelid parasites is, you know, they're maintained in the urinary tract, and they can get quite can get quite long, so they're not going to be routinely detected in a fecal exam. Um, but one of the other things is that we know that these parasites. Um, are present in free ranging frogs. And we know that these parasites are present in free ranging Cuban tree frogs. Um, And a lot of the bromeliads that come um, that are used in the hobby come from farms in Florida. Not all of them. I mean, there, there's other places that grow bromeliads as well. Um, but a lot of them do have Florida origins. And every once in a while, you'll hear about people who have bought bromeliads and a frog comes along with them. They'll, they'll find a Cuban tree frog or they'll find another tree frog in their bromeliad shipment. Um, and that's another potential way that we can introduce those parasites to our animals.
0: That's fascinating and horrific at the same time. My God, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. I... I you know, you raise a really good point about the importance of, I guess, you know, pro- well, prophylactic, I don't know if it's the right term, but preventatively, um, you know, examining an animal before it dies for, for parasites and, and whatnot, because I, I often feel like a lot of people have kind of a hesitancy to have fecals done and to even have a necropsy done, um, maybe just out of concern that it might affect their business if it gets out or um some people might take it personally that they failed as a hobbyist or something like that do you think that people need to have a a better perception of like how important these tests are or you think people will kind of come around eventually
1: i mean i think that um i think it would be a lot it would be more beneficial to the hobby if more people embraced this testing, um, and you know really you know used it as part of an appropriate quarantine procedure. Um, and um, quarantine is probably one of the most important yet the most underutilized tools um, that we have as. Uh, individuals who keep reptiles and amphibians as pets um, appropriate monitoring of an animal in a quarantine setting um, for a substantial amount of time you know ideally at the minimum three months um, to assess for any issues with eating assess for any concerns you may have about weight loss um, and then again to do uh, you know appropriate fecal examinations um, on those animals um, there you know there's not there's not a lot of tests that we can do on amphibians, um, to kind of test for, for baseline things outside of chytrid swabs and fecal exams. Um, and if you're talking about reptiles, you know, we can get oral swabs, we can get cloacal swabs, and we can then test for other important pathogens that may be important for a quarantine situation. Um, but in, you know, for the dendrobatids at least they're much, much too small to try and get a swab of the oral cavity and it's impossible to get a swab of the actual cloaca. Uh, and so fecals and, you know, chytrid swabbing, you know, are kind of the really best things to start with. Um, I do understand, and I can certainly appreciate the concern, um, of, you know, breeders or, um, resellers that, you know, what it may mean if, uh, if a disease is identified in their animals. Um, and so one important thing to remember is anytime you submit a sample to a diagnostic lab, um, or to a pathologist, um, client, uh, Patient confidentiality is is extremely important right so names don't ever get released you know there's no no characteristics that um, can be used to identify who the animal came from you know that's that that's not going to happen um, you know there's not going to be you know people hopefully not going to be people talking about these results on, and you know different you know, outlets online, um, that, that are available now. Um, and the other important thing that I, that I really would love for, um, breeders and hobbyists, uh, and keepers of reptiles and amphibians to understand is that, you know, disease happens and it's not a negative on your skills or your, um, you know, your operation. Uh, I mean, if you were to ask a dairy farmer or you were to ask a beef farmer or a horse farmer if they deal with any sort of disease in their animals, and the answer is going to be absolutely yes. Um, you know, disease happens. It's it's how you manage that disease and how you deal with it that's the most important. Um, but in in the reptile and amphibian hobby, there is most definitely a stigma associated with disease, um, and because of that, I think of things. A lot of things just kind of stay under the radar because there may be important things that are that need to be, uh, you know, looked into as it relates to animal health. But you know, those things aren't talked about um, out loud because no one wants to you know, no one wants to deal with that. You know, we, I think we saw that to some degree with, um, the very early reproduction of the smaller U'ufaga species, particularly Pumilio. You know, there were issues with, um, you know, growth, you know, a lot of Pumilio would be stunted. They would have abnormal thickness of their forelimbs. And, um, there was, you know, you could sometimes you could tell a captive-bred pumilio from a wild-caught one because it just had a different stance. It was more and kind of a bulldog pose, um, and that's because the bones actually didn't form as well in those animals. Um, and so, but that was not something that that people really wanted to talk about that much. Um, you know, multiple instances of mycosis, uh I, have come to me that have pop, popped up in either collections, um, captive collections of captive and captive bred animals, or, you know, recent imports. Um, and again, you know, once those things are found, you know, the, the best thing would be, you know, to kind of say, Hey, this is happening. This is what you should look out for. But what more generally happens is is that you tell someone this and then it's absolute radio silence. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing else that they want to talk about. Um, and so that's that's one of the challenges. It, disease is it just because you have an animal that gets sick, it does not mean you did anything wrong. Um, and you know, it if you are going through the process of having an animal necropsied or having it tested, you are doing everything right, and you're doing what you should do as a responsible owner.
0: What are some of the co- more common parasites that you might encounter? And I'm also curious what the difference is between um, all right, i'm gonna give you three situations here a wild caught frog let's just say a fresh import a captive bred frog that was you know say like an f2 or an f3 and um let's just say for for each of them like what the differences in, in parasitic load is and then i guess long term in terms of like will will the wild caught animal maintain that parasitic load throughout its life in captivity or will that lessen will that change and the same for the um, for the captive red frog. I hope that wasn't too confusing. I threw a lot at you. <laughs>
1: no, no, that's no, no, a it's a great question. So um, we'll start with the wild caught frogs, right? So wild caught frogs um, have been living in the natural environment for you know at least a period of time, um, and a part of that interaction with the natural environment is parasitism, right? So a wild caught frog is absolutely going to have some degree of parasitism. Um, And, you know, for a while, um, there was a, you know, a belief, I think, you know, within veterinary medicine that all parasites are bad. And if you see parasites, you have to treat. Um, And I think for the most, most part, we've gotten away from that in our non-traditional species. Um, I think for our domestic species, dogs and cats, we still push very hard for them not to have parasites. People don't want to see their pet dog passing worms in its stool. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's not good to see. And it can indicate, you know, some issues that may be happening in the dog. And there's zoonotic risk as well for some of these. Um, but you know, when it comes to our or non-traditional species, particular reptiles and amphibians, we know that they can have a baseline parasitism. um, And some of these parasites don't really cause much in the way of uh, significant disease. And so um, I think it's really important if you have um, wild caught animals that you have a fecal done to try and assess what parasites are present And as to your part of the question, is that parasitic community going to be sustained um, as its life in captivity? It really depends on the parasite. So some parasites have complex life cycles where they need other intermediate hosts to complete a full life cycle. And if it's one of those parasites that needs another intermediate host, Usually, those parasites are never going to encounter that other intermediate host in the captive setting, and so that's kind of a dead end infection for that parasite. Um, and once those parasites start to die off due to age, the parasite infection isn't going to renew, right? Um, what's more concerning is what happens when we get um, direct developing parasites, um, and so. Uh, this is uh, kind of going to go back to uh, one of your I think you asked this question at the beginning of uh, this part is, you know, what are some of the parasites that we most commonly see? Um, and we do, we see a variety of parasites in, in captive amphibians. Um, but the parasites that concern me the most, and the parasites that I routinely see causing the most disease in frogs, are um, the strongyloides or Rhabdias parasites. And so strongyloides and Rhabdias parasites are very closely related. Um, they're almost indistinguishable under the microscope. Um, their difference is really just in the unique feature of the larva. One, the larva of Strongyloides have a hooked tail and the larva of Rabdius do not. So you, it's hard to differentiate them, um, but they have very similar life cycles. Only the Rabdius worms are lung worms. So the adults reside in the lungs and the Strongyloides parasites are intestinal worms and the adults reside in the intestine. The thing that's so troubling about these worms and why they become such an issue for uh, amphibians in captivity is that they're direct developing. So that means that the frogs will pass the infective larvae in their feces and those infective larvae can reinfect the frog so you can amplify the infection that way. The other thing that's really an issue with those two genera of parasites is that In addition to being able to reinfect the frog, so let's say the frog passes a stool sample or a fecal uh, bowel movement, and it's in the bottom of the tank and the frog isn't near it anymore, right? So there may be larva in that fecal, um, but they can't infect the frog anymore. But what they can do is actually develop into free living adults in the substrate continue to breed in the substrate and continue to produce more and more infective larva. And then every time the frog goes down to the bottom of the tank, it can get reinfected. And so we see, we can see very heavy super infections with those two, uh, those two different species of parasites. Um, and so the, you, you asked about the difference between a wild caught and a captive bred frog. Um, in a captive bred frog, we would anticipate to see less Parasite diversity in a fecal sample, um, but we still may see some parasites, particularly ciliates—you know, little protozoal organisms. Um, they're a normal inhabitant of the uh, frog GI tract. We may see some worms, but again, usually the worms that I'm most concerned about are the Rhabdias and Strongyloides species. Uh, and again, they infect the frog, they infect them really severely. The larva and the adults start to crawl their way through the lining of the intestine. And in really severe cases, they actually go all the way through the intestinal wall and go out into the abdomen or the salomic cavity and then cause inflammation of the coil. Um, and so that's they are they are a, a huge, huge issue in uh, in captive amphibians
0: now is this something that will pan out over the course of days weeks months years like if i mean how do you like what are some telltale signs that you're dealing with this this particular uh, group of parasites like how can you i mean obviously it's not necessarily going to anything (laughs) it could be anything but um how do you identify that this might be a possible cause like let's just say you have a collection that's gone on for like 10 15 years can they suddenly Become very, very ill because of this, just like just because
1: they can. Um, And again, so usually um, it takes a long time for these parasites to build their numbers up in an enclosure. So um, if you have an enclosure and you introduced frogs into that brand new enclosure, and one or more of the frogs you introduced into that enclosure um, potentially had strongeloides, it would then inoculate the enclosure with the strongyloides parasite and over the course of a couple of years you're going to see the parasite loads get really high and then unfortunately the only real sign that you're going to see in the frogs affected with this as the infection gets more severe is they're going to not be able to keep weight on they're going to start losing weight Um, and it doesn't seem to you know no matter how much you feed them they can't seem to put weight back on and they continue to lose weight. Um, And, you know, we see that, you know, that I get that history a lot on um, dendrobatids is, you know, super skinny, you know, can't can't get weight on. And so parasitism is always one of my main concerns, but, you know, remember that there's, there are likely when we keep frogs in our nice little glass boxes um, there are other things that are happening to those frogs there's stressors between individual animals i mean particularly if you're trying to keep you know animals in a group that maybe don't do the best in the group if you're really trying to get that that trio of tinctorius in your display tank but you know that the tinctorius and trio while it can work uh, with two males and a female, it's you're still going to have one male that's probably a little bit more stressed than the other, and over time, that's going to cause weight loss. So, just because you have a a frog that's losing weight doesn't mean that it has to be parasitism. Um, but that's you know that's one of the big things you want to rule out. Um, I think one of the other times we see this um, be a bigger issue a lot quicker um, is when owners reuse tanks or reuse substrate or reuse leaf litter, or, you know, even the moving of chunks of substrate and leaf litter from one enclosure to another to inoculate, uh, you know, microfauna populations, you want to get some more springtails in a tank, so you grab some of the substrate from one tank, move it into another, you also can then potentially be moving those same parasites. Um, And, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of times you've got these Beautiful, beautiful enclosures. Um, and you've put a lot of time and effort into doing the design of those enclosures. You've got really important plants in there. You know, I mean, anyone who's made one of these amazing dart frog enclosures knows how much time, effort, and money goes into just the enclosure part, not to mention the frogs. And so, say you have a tank with frogs in it, and you know, you had them for several years, and for whatever reason you lost your frogs, but you still have this beautiful tank. So what do some people do? Well, they buy new frogs to go in the tank. If that tank is set up with those parasites at a high load, those new frogs that are going in are really doomed. I mean, they don't have a chance. They're going to get heavy parasitism, uh, heavy parasitism very quickly. And you're going to have animals that just aren't going to thrive.
0: I am. That makes me feel better because I'm so meticulous when it comes to my cleaning protocols. Like I don't, like when I wipe down the glass, I use a different paper towel for each tank. Like I won't like, yeah. I, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of, it defeats the purpose though, because I have taken plants from one enclosure and then added them to another. But I, yeah I did the whole bleach dip thing. And I'm wondering if we could get your opinion on that in terms of how effective, well, what can you do to prevent parasitic transmission from like taking a cutting from one enclosure and putting it into another?
1: So, um you know, the, biosecurity is really key so things that you know you you mentioned so if you're cleaning glass or something you know changing paper towels in between don't move the same paper towel from one to the other Um, this may seem a little extreme but wearing gloves is incredibly useful Um, but you need to change those gloves regularly if you're digging around in the substrate of a tank with a pair of gloves. Uh, then if you're going to go work in another tank, you need to put another pair of gloves on alternatively, just wash your hands really well in between different tanks. Um, I think in a perfect world, all cuttings that go into an enclosure would be coming from frog free enclosures that you're generating the cuttings from. Does that always happen? No, probably not. Um, and so that's where treatment of the cuttings, um, for, getting rid of anything that's on them, um, that only not only benefits the plants, right? Cause you could bring plant parasites along from tank to tank. Um, but it really benefits the frogs as well. Um, so the bleach, uh, the bleach treatment is, um, is a good one. You know, not all plants are, You know, really able to do that, particularly some of the more sensitive ones. Um, The key with any sort of bleach treatment, um, the percentage of bleach is one, which we don't really have a problem with. I mean, you take your household bleach and dilute it down uh, tenfold or so; it's still going to be good. The important part is contact time. Whenever you're talking about disinfection, the bleach needs to be able to be in contact with the surface of the cuttings, and it needs to be in contact with the surface of the cuttings long enough to actually cause the death of anything that might be on top of that plant cutting. And sometimes that in itself is enough to kill the plant cutting. Um, You know, there are other modes of disinfection. Hydrogen peroxide based disinfectants can be very useful. I have to admit, I don't know how a lot of plant cuttings respond to hydrogen peroxide. I would think that it would be better than the bleach. Um, and, you know, a lot of the parasites that we deal with in amphibians are um, sensitive to hydrogen peroxide. Uh, you know, when we talk about reptiles, we we can see. So there's a particular parasite of reptile, well, all animals, really, um, that is called cryptosporidium. And most people, if they have reptiles, have probably heard of cryptosporidium as causing stomach or intestinal disease in snakes and lizards. Um, But there are actually cryptosporidia of amphibians. They're not as well characterized and they're not out there in anywhere near as high a numbers, Um, but they can occur um, and they can cause, you know, significant weight loss in those animals. Those cryptosporidial organisms are really resistant to most things, including hydrogen peroxide. Uh, and so bleach is the, is really the best. Um, but again, you have to make sure that the contact time is long enough.
0: I'm, I'm so meticulous. Like <laughs> I don't even, I, you know, you mentioned about hand washing. I know I just talked about the glass, but I won't touch. If I do any kind of work in one enclosure, I wash my hands before I touch anything else. Even if it's going from yeah. like frog to like tarantula, I still I just always wash my hands. I, I just, I don't know what it is. I just don't want to bring anything from one tank to the other. I know people have laughed at me for that, but now I have you on my side to defend, to defend my practices.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I, I mean, what you're doing is, is fantastic. Um, but I would say, you know, I, you're probably not the norm. And I, I, even I, um, you know, you know, I had in my, when I had more time as a vet student, you know, my dart frog collection was over 50 tanks and you know it's it's a big you know i i probably wasn't the most biosecure person as i possibly could be and and so there are you know there are ways that you can do biosecurity in a way that you know keeps up with your 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 moving things through the collection and doing things the right way but ultimately that high level of biosecurity is what's going to save you if you do have a really substantial infectious disease introduced into your collection if you have chitrid introduced into your collection if you have really strong biosecurity you're probably going to keep that chitrid enclosed to one or two tanks is the where it started Um, if you don't have great biosecurity that disease could move through your entire collection and you may be losing frogs all over the place Um, so it's really really important to think about and something absolutely to consider
0: so if someone wants to have a necropsy done or a fecal done like let's i'll give i'll tell you i'll give you two hypothetical scenarios scenario one uh, i just i had a healthy frog just suddenly die and i want a necropsy and second scenario i have another frog in that tank i want to make sure that that frog is okay i want to send you one to be necropsied and obviously a fecal from the second frog to be looked at for parasites or whatever how would the average hobbyist go about collecting the samples in a way that they'll be preserved and then send them to you and then what would the process be for you to look at them and whatnot.
1: Yep, absolutely. So, um, it's two, you have two different timelines of things. You have one that needs immediate action and urgency. And the other one that you can kind of approach with a little bit more lackadaisical attitude. Um, once you have found, um, an amphibian deceased, um, to have a any sort of examination, any sort of necropsy done on that animal, um, it needs to be in good condition. So um, many of you have probably lost frogs before, and you know that if you lose a frog in your tank, if you don't see it within the first several hours of it dying, um, the springtails start covering the frog. You might have isopods on the frog. So, um, there's a term we use in pathology called skeletonization, um, and so that is when you know if you've had a frog die and you look at the ends of its toes, you can actually see the bones of the toes because the the flesh of it has actually already been eaten or rotten off, and that happens so very very fast in amphibians. It really limits the ability um, of you know a necropsy to be done without the owner getting that animal into a fixative solution as soon as possible. So if you find a frog that has died and you wanna consider a necropsy, the very first thing you should do is get that frog into fixative. Because once it's in fixative, then you can decide whether or not you want the necropsy or not. You can shoot me an email, I can get back to you about what we do, timeline, all of that. Um, But you can still say no and you've lost nothing other than um, the time that it took you to put the frog in fixative. So, there are two main fixatives that we can use in veterinary medicine for pathology. Um, the first fixative is formalin or ten percent neutral buffered formalin. Some people refer to it as formaldehyde. Um, for- what formalin does is it's a fixative that cross-links proteins. Um, And by cross-linking all the proteins in a tissue, it stabilizes that tissue and doesn't allow it to rot anymore. Um, And so formalin fixation is really, really good um, at preserving the architecture of tissues. Um, And uh, what you would do is you would take the frog, um, you would cut, if you are comfortable doing this, it's always better, better to take a small pair of scissors or a scalpel blade or a small knife and cut the skin of the belly, um, so that that formalin can get into the body cavity and get around all the tissues and preserve everything perfectly. Um, there's a couple of limitations with using formalin, though. Um, limitation number one is it is a nasty chemical. It's a carcinogen. It's not something you want to play with all the time. Uh, issue number two is it can be really hard to find. Um, Unless you have a good relationship with your local exotics vet who have small vials of formalin on hand in, you know, just this instance for doing biopsy and necropsy examination, um, it can be very tough for the average hobbyist to find formalin in a short amount of time. You can order formalin from, you know big online stores, Amazon, other places like that. Um, but because of the nature of the chemical that it is, it has to be shipped ground. It's not shipped via air. Uh, and so it can take a little bit longer to get to you. So if you haven't planned ahead, you may find yourself with a dead frog and no formalin, um, for people that have large collections of frogs or amphibians, um, I highly recommend having formalin as just in your, your closet, having it there that you could pull out. If you ever find a dead animal, you put it in a, a sealable you know, vial or a, a, you know, a screw top Ziploc, um, uh, one of those plastic Ziploc containers or the ones that you can get you know, at your supermarket. Uh, and you put it approximately a ratio of 10 parts formalin to one part frog so that it's in an appropriate amount of formalin and then it'll fix. Um, one other limitation of formalin is that while it crosslinks all of the proteins, it is also crossing, crosslinking the proteins associated with DNA and RNA, the nucleic acids. And so if an animal sits in formalin too long and say, we, we had a frog, um, and it, when I looked it under the microscope, I was suspicious for a infection, which is an important viral infection of amphibians. Um, if the frog was fixed in formalin and was stored in formalin for more than three or four days before it got to me, I may not be able to detect that virus by PCR. So it does limit downstream testing in certain instances, but it makes the tissues look absolutely beautiful and you know, you can get a good uh, diagnosis. The other option for fixative is one that's probably a lot more accessible to the average hobbyist. And that is 70% ethanol. And so 70% ethanol will fix tissues in a different way than formalin. 70% ethanol will replace the water in tissues um, and that will preserve them for long-term storage. Now, the ethanol does affect the way that the tissues look under the microscope. So tissues fixed in ethanol do not look at the same as tissues fixed with formalin. But again, the more samples that you look at with ethanol fixation, the more you get used to the different normal for tissues fixed in ethanol versus tissues fixed in formalin. Um, the other nice thing about ethanol is it is something that most every hobbyist can get access to easily. Um, and so 70 percent ethanol that's so rubbing alcohol is um, isopropyl alcohol. you, you don't want to use isopropyl alcohol. Um, you don't want to use uh, you know some of the other alcohols that may be available that you can typically find in Uh, you know, CVS or Walgreens, you really want 70% ethanol. And the easiest way to make 70% ethanol yourself is to go to the liquor store and buy Everclear or grain alcohol. Um, And grain alcohol is practically 200 proof. So it's about 95, 98% alcohol, um, depending on the the quality of the brand. It's not very expensive. Um, and if you take three parts of Everclear or grain alcohol and dilute it to one part water, you then have approximately 70% ethanol. And you do the same thing with the frog. You cut the frog open along, uh, along the belly skin, and you put it in the ethanol. Again, 10 parts ethanol to one part frog. And boom, you've got that frog in a fixative that is going to allow for both histologic and molecular characterization. I can take that frog that's been in ethanol and still swab its skin with a swab and run kitchard PCR. The ethanol doesn't affect that at all. So that's really the you know the, the critical step in in trying to decide if you want a frog to have a necropsy is to get the the body fixed, and then once the body's fixed, you can get in touch with me um, and so you know'll we'll, I'll share some of my contact info uh, with Dan when you know so that he can put this up, but you know shoot me an email and then I can send you the appropriate submission form. Um, you know our costs. Uh, we try to keep our costs low for um, uh, for these types of cases, again, because um, we not only want to help um, everyone who owns reptiles and amphibians, we also want to you know get some of that data from from these species as to what what is actually the most common causes of decline. Are there infectious diseases we should know about. Um, so i I don't have the exact price in front of me, and it does go up like 3% every July because of the hospital fees and things like that. Um, but it's about $85 to have a necropsy done on a uh, typical frog. You know, if you've got like a giant horned frog or a big marine toad or something, you know, that's that's a different story. But for most of you out there with, with, with dendrobatids and, and other smaller size frogs, um, it's about $85 for a full necropsy. And, and, you know, that'll get you a lot of information. Uh, from that. So now for the other frog in the enclosure, you're interested in doing a fecal on that frog. The Really the most important thing, and and it kind of jumps back to what we chatted about a little bit earlier, is you want an absolutely clean fecal sample from that frog. What you do not want to do is try and collect a Fecal sample that was laid in the tank or produced in the tank and has been sitting there even for some number of minutes. Um, because there are a ton of soil nematodes that then can make their way into the fecal sample and can be really can make interpretation of that sample a lot more complicated. Um, so the best way to get a fecal sample from a frog is to just get a paper towel, moisten that paper towel, and put it in, uh, you know, the bottom of either a rubber made tub or, you know, a small Ziploc tub that you can put the frog in overnight, just leave it in the sealed container uh, with a little bit of a moistened paper towel. And you, I mean, if the frog's been eating, the frog's going to defecate in that container, usually within a matter of hours and definitely overnight. Um, return the frog back to its enclosure Take the fecal material that's present on the paper towel and just fold the paper towel up with the feces in it and put it in a Ziploc bag and stick it in the refrigerator. Um, and from that sample that's in the refrigerator, um, you know, a m- number of different analyses can, and can be done, um, you know, a, a, direct, uh, a direct examination or if there's enough feces, a fecal float. Uh, And then to get an idea of the types and the load of parasites that are present in that frog. Uh, So again, I work closely with a parasitologist at UF, Dr. Heather Walden. um, And, you know, I give the samples to her. um, And I'm pretty sure that her cost for uh, sedimentation on a frog fecal is about $22, give or take. Uh, and you know, you can pool fecal samples from multiple frogs if you want to try and get a better idea what's going on. But the only limitation is if you pool samples from multiple frogs and one of the multiple frogs is positive, you're going to get a positive result back on your pooled fecal and you won't actually know who has the parasites in them.
0: I see. And obviously, if someone wanted to to do this they could reach out to you and communicate with you about because every situation is going to be different obviously i mean i I made kind of a very specific one but obviously you could communicate with people who are interested and guide them accordingly
1: yeah yeah i um you know i'm pretty good about my email i you know i get i do get a lot of emails and from all over the place but generally you know i try to respond in 24 hours or less um you know, I might not be always be able to immediately get back to everyone if they're set, shooting me an email at 10 o'clock at night, and that's why. You know, again, the the most important thing to do in these scenarios is. If you find a frog deceased and you're even thinking about having a necropsy done, get it into something that will preserve the tissues. Because once it's in that preservative, you can send me the frog two or three weeks later. If you just want to see if you have one that's deceased and you want to see if anyone else, something happens to anyone else before you decide to invest the money in a necropsy, you can just keep that sample in formalin or ethanol on the counter at room temperature indefinitely. A necropsy can be done at any time. Uh, so it's it's just really important to to preserve the frog in a way that if you do want an exam done at any point, it can be done.
0: Uh, odd question. I have a lot of wet specimens that I've just animals that have just you know I've had die over the past like twenty years. I have them preserved in isopropyl alcohol. What's so bad about isopropyl alcohol as opposed to say ethanol? Like what's what's the difference in terms of what it does to the tissue?
1: Isopropyl alcohol just doesn't. Um, it doesn't preserve the tissues as well as ethanol. So while so um, you know, when you look at it, it may still look like a frog, but the tissues inside of it have lost a lot of the detail that would be important for a necropsy. So that's that's the challenge with rubbing alcohol and other things like that is it's just they're not very efficient at preserving the tissues in a way that allows us to do that examination of the tissues after the fact.
0: Okay. I see. I see. Yeah. I was always curious because I have, I mean, I have a Marine toad that's, I have preserved an alcohol since 1997 and I was always just wow, curious. Yeah. yeah. I was always, I mean, periodically I'll, I'll top off the alcohol or I'll open up the containers and, you know, add more or whatever. But, uh, I was always just curious about like, for argument's sake, like if I wanted a necropsy done on this frog, like almost Thirty years later, if it would work or not, but obviously not if it's in the isopropyl uh,
1: yeah, it would be you know it could it be done yes, would you, but you wouldn't get you know you wouldn't get a ton of information from it, but if it was in if it was in seventy percent ethanol or formalin and it was thirty years old, it would still be just as good to have an necropsy done at any point
0: well, that's good to know now I know if I'm going to preserve wet specimens, I'm going to go the ethanol route from now on yeah that's interesting that's it's i love stuff like this so we're kind of at the end but i wanted to ask your opinion as a veterinarian as well as a hobbyist as a vet how would you recommend that dart frogs be kept successfully and what husbandry methods have worked for you
1: um you know that that's a really complicated question um because we know that um, dendrobatids in particular can survive, um, in, in some degrees, even flourish and reproduce in, you know, the most minimal of conditions possible. Um, I think, I think when we did this, the first time I mentioned, you know, one of my friends back when I was in, uh, in vet school, you know, he had been doing frogs for quite a while at that time. And he was about, you know, a little bit younger than I was, but he had been in the hobby for a long time. And uh, I helped take care of his frogs whenever he would go out of town. And he had a variety of different dendrobates. Um, and, you know, one was almost set up exactly the same way, just a 10-gallon tank with a little bit of substrate and a little bit of cocoa hut and maybe some pothos or something in there and those frogs would you know they breed they have babies all the time you know you know overtly the the frogs looked just fine um so you know from a veterinary perspective we were offering those animals a lot of what they needed to survive um but i think that um at least what I would like to see, and I I definitely see the hobby has gone this direction and and it's really exciting, is we're looking beyond just meeting the absolute basic minimum requirements of the species we keep. Um, And we're trying to offer them um, larger, more complex enclosures um, that allow them to, you know, kind of more accurately reproduce natural behavior to whatever degree they can reproduce natural behavior in a closed box. Um, and you know, it's, it, it, in some ways it makes keeping the frogs more enjoyable when we do that. Cause you can see all of them, you know, using all different parts of the tank, you can see more behavior. Uh, and I think, you know, it's kind of a, how do we quantify the, uh, enrichment and well-being of a frog? I mean, it's really hard to do, but I would like to think that those animals then in that more enriched habitat, um, are, you know, doing better than they were if we kept them in the absolute bare natural enclosures. Uh, the other thing that I think we've made, um, you know, a lot of progress on, and it's, it's very happy. And we chatted a little bit about this uh, last time, uh, was just, you know, with changes in vitamins and minerals. And so I think the vitamin supplementation that's available now is so drastically improved as to what it was 10 or 15 years ago, uh, you know, the vitamin companies, more vitamin companies have recognized that, uh, dart frogs and, and a lot of amphibians need preformed vitamin a, um, in their vitamin mixes. And that beta carotene, which is a precursor of vitamin a, um, cannot be converted in many of our amphibian species. Um, so we're, you know, we're increasing the quality of nutrition. Um, I ha I am not as active in, you know a lot of the different uh amphibian um, amphibian internet communities i mean before you know, when I was getting when I was coming up it was it was a lot easier i think you know it was either you know it was either dendro board or I think it was dart den was the other major online community um and you know that that was the change from um, you know, before that it was Frognet, which was essentially just an email listserv. And then before that, it was the ADG newsletters. And and so I, after, you know, after about the the Dendra board dart den time, when things then started to move to Facebook and then other social media sites, you know, the the information is spread out a lot more and it's a little bit harder to find. Um, but my initial my initial uh Understanding, I think, right now is that there isn't as much of an interest in finding and offering diverse food items. Um, you know, the moving beyond just the fruit flies and the bean beetles and, you know, offering more. You know, for a while when I had my frogs, I had a colony of fire brats and they were amazing frog food. Um, they were kind of a pain to keep, but once you got their conditions right, they did they did amazing things. Um, wax moths were great food. You know, I, I would really like to see a push towards a higher diversity of feeders. Um, because, you know, I think that's where we really can get better nutritional profiles into our animals is when we start offering a lot more diverse food material. Um, so, you know, I think the, the, from as a veterinarian and a hobbyist, um, the hobby has made incredible moves forward. Um, you know, things that now get a lot of more attention, um, that before were only a very select few of the hardcore keepers would worry about, you know, a clay based soil that allows calcium loading to, um, different animals or, you know, the types of plants that go in the enclosure, you know, are they, and I am a, I'm a huge biotope type guy. I don't like plants to be in an enclosure with frogs that are coming from different continents. Um, you know, that's my personal preference, but you know, that we're, we're, we're think- there are more people thinking about that. I've seen, you know, a lot of really cool things with 3d printing now, um, you know, the, the fake, the fake bromeliads that you can offer to, uh, U'ufaga or Renitomaya for breeding. Those are a fantastic, because if you have fake bromeliads that the frogs are actually using to deposit TADs for feeding, you can pull those fake bromeliads out and disinfect that bromeliad before the next round of breeding goes. And then you can stop the cycle of some of those parasites that we talked about a little earlier. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I'm really impressed by a lot of the the changes that are happening in the hobby. Um, you know, the hobby has some of its own issues that it's always had this, you know, I'm, I'm a little dismayed that we keep changing focus of what the most popular species are. Um, and so that we have lost so many incredibly cool dendrobated species over time because there was just waning interest. And so too few people had them and then they were lost to history. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's always things that the hobby can do better, but in terms of, you know, animal enrichment, animal health, you know, feeding and those, I think it's making really, really good progress.
0: I think we definitely have one up on many of the other animal hobbies in terms of attention to detail. And by, by that, I mean, uh, like to keep dart frogs, it's always been my opinion that just keeping a, a planted tank with, you know, all the usual stuff in it, you know, the springtails and whatnot, it just, to me, it just seems easier. It just seems more natural. I, I don't know. Like, I've been keeping animals like that for so long, I couldn't really imagine it any other way, you know? I don't know. I mean, I feel like... yeah. Yeah. Like, re- I mean, re- reptile people, and I mean, I keep, I keep reptiles. That's my dirty, dark secret, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I hear other, like other people in the reptile community talk about enclosure designs and they get so excited and it's like, look, man, like we frog people have been doing this for like, like 30 years. Like it's not, it's, it's nothing yeah. new, you know what I mean? It's actually pretty easy once you get the hang of it. I don't know. It's just, but you're you're, yeah. you're right. It's so hard to quantify what what is actually happening, you know, because they're not. We, we can't communicate with them. We can't really interact with them the way that you would with dogs or cats or, or primates or any, or, or at least not in the way that we understand it. I guess that's the other thing is we're kind of biased to look at things a certain way. But maybe that'll change too. Yep. So, as if any of the listeners wanted to get in touch with you to find out more. Or to if they had an interest in getting a fecal done or a necropsy, how would they reach out to you?
1: Um, so the easiest way really is uh, is to just email me, um, and um, if you just Google my last name, so Asaboff, O S S uh, I B O F F, as in Frank. Um, uh, luckily, when you have a really weird last name. Um, there's not a lot of competition for Google searching. So, uh, my name, you know, my stuff comes up first whenever you Google my last name. And I think the first thing that comes up is my departmental webpage. And so, you can get my email address from that departmental webpage. Um, and the best thing to do is just email me. Uh, and then I can discuss with you about, you know, how to submit things, you know, more fine details in submission forms, turnaround times, all that sort of information. Um, and yeah, that, that's, that's really, and from there I can help, you know, I can help point you in the right direction. Um, I can, you know, for, for parasite exams, I can get those samples to Dr. Walden um, for PCR testing Uh, you know, again, I run, I'm the co-director of the molecular diagnostic lab here at the University of Florida. So I can direct your molecular samples that, that way. Um, I am not, I don't want people to think that I'm running a monopoly on this whole thing. Uh, And so, you know, I I always offer other, you know, options for PCR testing, or if you have questions about someone doing a fecal, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always happy to help you with that information for other people as well. You know, my goal is really just to improve, uh, amphibian health and be a resource to hobbyists
0: well that's great to hear you know it's nice I mean the other thing Oz is I, I gotta tell you it's really nice hearing someone with so much passion for the material as you have you know to someone who's so dedicated to something that's so like such a a niche thing um, it's, it's, it's good to hear you know it's encouraging to hear that um, you know there's someone like you out there who's advocating so much for this stuff
1: yeah, I mean it's I I feel incredibly lucky. Like I mean it's um yeah, there were a lot of different steps to my career, but you know, all of the paths ultimately lined up the right way and um I get, you know, I get to do cool stuff at work every single day. Um and that, you know, that's you know, that's that's I think for me at least it's it's a dream for me. I I am a workaholic um and um, by combining my personal interests with my work interests, um, I feel a less guilt, little less guilty about the workaholic part because what I do really does make me very, very happy. Um, and so, and a big part of that happiness comes from helping others um, with their animals. And, and that's what drove me to veterinary medicine in the beginning to begin with. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I love what I do and I'm happy to help everyone.
0: Well, that's, that's the most important thing in life is being happy with what you do every single day. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to thank Oz again for being so kind to do this twice. I, I know I, I've been joking about it, but, um, we, uh, yeah, we did this twice and, um, I'm really glad that, you know, Oz was, um, you know, we were able to set this up again for a second time. I feel like I owe you like a steak dinner now for all the hurdles I've made you, ju- oh, no. <laughs> made you jump through, but, um, It's been fun. It's been enlightening. Uh, I love having conversations like this. I want to thank Oz for coming on and sharing all of his expertise on it. And uh, be sure you check out, I'll put some of the info in the show description. Be sure you check that out. And, uh, you know, look, if you have an interest in the matter, just, you know, reach out to him and see where it takes you. So, all right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did, and I've got some good stuff coming up on the horizon, so I'll be sure to catch up with you soon.